There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes, the Book of Revelations. The revelations continue, not from me, John Richardson, but from the Future Notes. Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mr. Mark Stevenson. Good. Uh, oh, yeah. I was going to say good evening because we're recording in the evening, but of course people listen to this at different times, so it would sound odd, wouldn't it? So I will simply say... Good times. Good times, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's get Let's get this party started. <laughs> Very rare we go wrong. Second word. Second <laughs> word. Already a stumble. Well, w- one of the things that strikes me from the emails we've had is just the... the they're coming in from all over the world. Uh, Austria, Australia, Catalonia. So I think you can legitimately say good evening. And it, it's evening for somebody who's listening. Yes. And for everyone else, we're just, you know, we're just a group of like-minded, like future thinking, like caring people who just like aren't hung up on like time and shit. Yeah, well, that's better than one of the reviews, which said, if you want to listen to three depressed, miserable nerds, then this is your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read that one. I didn't notice that review was a five star, though. So yeah, yeah, they, they were obviously like, and I do, I do love yeah. three depressed nerds. <laughs> oh, I sort of want to meet that person. <laughs> How are you both? I wanted to talk about my gay swans. You got gay swans? I've got gay swans. <laughs> Believe it or not, I mean, like I've had these pair of swans which I've been feeding off the back deck of the mill um, ever since we moved in in the beginning of May, uh, and I, I sort of identified them because male swans have quite a distinctive cob, which is like a big lump just above the beak. Uh, and I thought, oh, it's, you know, I've got a couple of boys here. They're obviously just hanging out. Uh, and then they disappeared about a month ago, and I didn't see them for like three or four weeks, and I was starting to get a bit concerned. And then they rematerialized with a signet, and I was like, hang on, what's going on here? Uh, and I thought I'd misidentified them, you know, got their genders confused. And then when I Googled it, I discovered that actually like long-term male pairings are quite common in mute swans. Uh, and added to that, they often mate with a female who then donates the egg and the egg is then raised and the chick is hatched uh, and looked after by the boys. So Dave and Barry have, have got a baby. That's amazing. Isn't it amazing? And it's obviously it's all natural, um, you know, as, as homosexuality is. And it was just, it was phenomenal. So, yeah, I, I, as I said to my neighbour, I said, this is this is great. He goes, we should go to the press. I said, I don't think. <laughs> I don't, so I don't think this is a, a media story. Um, but, yeah, Dave and Barry uh, are with child. Well, what I want to know is, uh, I, I don't know. That's the first time I've heard in my neighbour anecdote. And I really liked it. So what I want now is for you to drip feed information about your neighbour because <laughs> the fact that you would knock your neighbour up and say, do you know what, we've got Gates Wands outside, and then his first or her first comment was, let's go to the press. 
I'm slowly building an image of him or her, and I want it built over series three. Talking of uh, talking of themes building up in this series, so we talked about Ed's terrible driving and him getting arrested. This morning, I received um, notice of uh, I have to go for a driver education course. <gasps> Or, or get points on my license and a fine for going 24 miles per hour in a 20 zone for about oh. 10 seconds. Oh, no, this is bad because this means that every bone in my body is saying, be arrogant, but that means there's something coming for me around the corner. Did you know you'd been done? Were you no. waiting for it? No, not at all. It's either points on my license and a fine or I've got to go for a driver education course. So you'll take the course? Yeah. I can't wait to see you in that class. Well, you know, you I probably can... will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for all the emails. People have been very kind uh, in welcoming us back. We've had feedback on, on the religion episode. Uh, Sean Crisp, a raised and practicing Anglican, but uh, agrees with a lot of the points on the difference between religion and faith, um, which was obviously a, a key part of the discussion. We remain influencing teachers, which is something that, I just, I still feel like a 10 year old boy. Teachers are still the rule makers, aren't they? And every now and again, we'll get an email from a teacher saying, Oh, thanks for that podcast. I've brought it into my lessons. And I think, Oh, no, we can't have got to the point where I have a say on what teachers teach. That's gone too far. I'm not comfortable <laughs> with that in terms of what it means for the future. I mean, I think lots of people view you as some kind of sage like figure, don't they, John? I mean, if I look at Twitter, there are many people who basically worship at the church of, of John Richardson. So, you know, you are a teacher and a messiah to, to many people. And, and you know, you got to get good at it because after a while, if you're not going to embrace your godlike status, uh, people are going to find other gods. And at the moment, you know, Joe Lysett's doing pretty well. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm pleased to see you've moved on. What we've not had enough of in Series 3 is references to comedians who are better and more successful than me. And it's, still, it's, it's taken till Episode 3, but well done. You've absolutely nailed it. I mean, yeah, he's sort of done... There was a point a couple of years ago when obviously Joe and I both had a thought that as comics we should be using our voice for good. I went into the podcast realm and he decided to get a whole TV series made where he actually influences companies to make change and changes sort of government. So, you know, we've gone different ways. I would be fascinated to hear a bit of fly on the wall in the Shell boardroom, having had them watch the trailer for his, like, Joe Lysett versus the oil giant. Yes, it's a very good video, I have to say. I mean, mm. it's quite extraordinary. I mean, like, you, you need to have a strong stomach to watch it, but... Well, I was with the, the, the CEO of Shell recently at the TED conference where uh, there was a massive storm off stage from an activist who was supposed to be debating climate change with him. So it's all kicking off. And what, what, what was the result of that when, when these worlds collide? It's, it's, it's the way we do things now is to get people who profoundly disagree and watch them tussle. I thought it was pointless, frankly. Uh, some people thought it was a really good you know, uh, demonstration of how much we dislike what they all business has been doing um for me i didn't think it changed anybody's opinion on either side and therefore actually probably further entrenched people which is exactly what we don't need at the moment and i mm. think those kind of meetings should be held behind closed doors rather than put on uh, stage for a for a theatrical uh, hit for one or either side so um i thought it was a big misstep by ted myself but, but did what did what the ceo shall say serve the argument either well, I, I mean, the, the problem was as soon as the activist walked off stage, 
left the whole stage to him and an investor and an activist investor so the tone of the conversation became very skewed towards you know finance and uh, activism in the investment world and whatever and actually i thought they missed a real chance to sort of nail him on some of the other stuff because they kind of you know lost their seat by by, by storming off i thought you know you've got him here he's trapped he's on the test mm. stage he's being filmed if you'd have kept you cool you could have really landed some pretty significant punches and maybe changed his mind as it is you probably entrenched his mind the idea that you're you're not worth engaging with which mm. is exactly um, you know, one of the problems we face at the moment. And did poo come out of his mouth? Uh, no, I think you are. I mean, I think we have to state at this point that for people who haven't seen the Joe Lysett thing, that's a reference to, to his uh, his video. It's not just something you say. <laughs> you can't get sued for saying that, can you? If you can, then I distance myself from Ed's comments completely. And for those who do struggle to distinguish us between our voices, that was the voice of Ed Gillespie that you heard there, and I didn't say it. Uh, um, I've said similar things in, in equally public arenas. Yeah, well, if you can't get sued for it, then I agree with everything he said. <laughs> so we're about to introduce our guest, have our chat. Afterwards, we will come to the pointless question and the confessional, as we always do. We're here to discuss one of the biggest topics um it's coming in series three not for any other reason then it was important to have the right guest and i think uh, we have the right guest we are now going to have the conversation the very fact that we're able to defer that conversation about race and have it at a time that was right for us is a symptom and a sign of i guess white privilege that we were able to put the conversation off and have it now but nevertheless we are having it and uh, we have a phenomenal guest with whom to have that conversation. So over to you, Ed. So as always, it is with great pleasure to welcome our special guest for the show today, Nova Reed. So Nova started out as a singer and actress, performing to 10,000 strong crowds at Wembley Arena. She then retrained and worked as a holistic therapist for over a decade. She founded and built the multi-award winning wedding platform, New Bride, to address the absolute paucity of diversity in the wedding world. She's been nominated one of the top 100 influential black British women. She designed and leads one of the best, most popular and indeed challenging uh, anti-racism courses around. Uh, she's a precious award winner for her work in racial and social justice, a popular keynote speaker. She's graced multiple media platforms from the BBC to Sky as a race expert. She is not the Marvel Comics superhero, Nova, who is a <laughs> member of the intergalactic police force Nova Corps. But as she says in her amazing TED Talk, not all superheroes wear capes. And there is always time, as Nova has already demonstrated throughout her career, to reinvent yourself. I first met Nova through an introduction by a friend and invited her to speak at a debate at the Shambhala Festival, where she brought her usual forthright eloquence and charm. Um, and here we're going to be talking about her new book, which is just out, The Good Ally, a guided anti-racism journey from bystander to changemaker. And I have to say, right at the start, you know, I was truly humbled by what I think is a pretty magnificent, heartfelt and powerful piece of work. The book is triggering uh, discombobulating, uh, extremely challenging in equal measures. I think I laughed, I cried, I ground my teeth. I did plenty of deep breathing. But what Nova does and what you do, Nova, is you wrap it in such firm and fair love and compassion. It just makes it so human. So it's sort of genuinely, authentically visceral and, and personal piece of scholarship with our collective health, wealth, wisdom and collaborative transcendence as an aspirational outcome. So, Wow. Amazing. Wow. Welcome to the show. <laughs> that is probably the best intro I've ever had. Thank you so much, Ed. What a pleasure. I liked it as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
John, I get the impression you haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know me so well. He has listened to it. <laughs> I am. I'm on the audio version. Okay. Um, well, I mean, we will get into it. It's it's not a book that you can rush. Rush. Yeah. There's there's a lot of things that are uh, in my head now as we speak, and will be in my head for a long time. And I guess that's the strength of it. And I would echo what, what Ed has said. It's it's a work that I can't quite comprehend how you managed to write. It must have taken a long time. And you sort of reference in the book, and it's something we talk a lot about in this podcast, that you have to sort of sometimes step back and protect your own mental health to be mm. able to be useful. So how, how was it writing the book in that sense? And, and how long did it take in terms of having to to sometimes step away and reassess, I guess, its toll on you? I mean, I started writing it in 2018 and um, I didn't get a publishing deal until April stroke May 2020. I can't actually remember now. Um, so there was a good good two years anyway between me starting to write it and, and actually getting a deal because I didn't finish it until I got a deal. So it was sort of half written. And in the beginning stages, I had the pleasure of time and it was on my terms and no deadlines, um, which made it easier to navigate the pressure really really comes into play when you're working to deadlines and your your creativity is being forced on top of you having to poke around in historical and and current trauma Mm -hmm. it took its toll like I combination of a few things but I lost 12 inches of hair my hair was coming out in clumps so it had a, a physical and emotional toll on me and it was the most important piece of work I've ever done and the most demanding yeah, well, I guess we should start by saying, obviously, you're, you're talking a lot about the book at the moment, and that is difficult. I would hope this is one of the interviews, although we want to get into the issue as properly as we can. Mm. Mark swears a lot. And if at any point you want to tell any of us to fuck off, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for permission. <laughs> I think it's unfair to say I swear more than any of the rest of you. No, it's oh, totally fair. Mate. It's totally fair. Come on. It's fucking not true. <laughs> right, shall we get into it? Yes. How fucked are we? How fucked are we? I think the thing that strikes me is that the, the fact that we still have systemic racism, despite, as far as I can remember, I've been talking about it for all of my life, you know, mm. that we've had this problem. So I'm 50 now and we've been talking about it. So the fact that we're still talking about it means that there's something fundamentally fucked, I think. There's something that isn't changing. I think actually that's what's interesting about your work, Nova, is you, you kind of do this thing where you say people think of racism as kind of overt acts of sort of hate based on sort of racial prejudice. And I think there's a definition that's sort of coined in 1902 that said that. And what you're saying is actually... The reason we're fucked is because there's something much more deep in our collective psyche. But before we get into that, it's just like if you just look at this, it's a bit like climate change. I was saying to it, there's so much research about this stuff, you know, and we know it, but yet we don't do anything. Like 18% of Brits believe that some races or ethnic groups are born less intelligent than others. That's yeah. uh, that's research from from the the Center for Social Investigation. Forty four percent of us think that some races or ethnic groups are born harder working than others. Job applications for typically black or Muslim names receive much less response than those with traditional British names. University of Manchester's racism report on on racism at work in two thousand nineteen said seventy percent 
of uh, ethnic non-minority workers say they've experienced racial harassment at work. Mm. And the 2021 Runnymede Trust research, uh, which is a, a race equality think tank, found that you know, basically, still racism is systemic in England, that uh, legislation, institutional practices and society's customers continue, it says, to combine to harm a marginalised group, showing again and again inequalities exist across health, the criminal justice system, education, employment, immigration and politics. So despite, you know, I think all of my life we've been talking about racism and the problem with it, it seems almost like nothing has changed. I think actually recently sort of hate crimes and stuff have actually gone up. So, you know, this is, I think, what's powerful about your work, Nova. There's obviously something in, I like to say, in the water that we're not addressing because mm. we're too busy swimming in it. <laughs> yeah. It's why I really like the quote by uh, Guante, uh, white supremacy isn't the shark, it's the water. Like mm. it's all around mm. us. It's mm. in every, I describe it as being in the fabric of the DNA of, of this country and also beyond it. And if we're too busy denying that it exists or only thinking that it exists in one way, we're distracted and we're not focused on actually addressing, right, how does racism show up in me? How does racism show up in healthcare outcomes? How does racism show up in criminal justice and law decisions? And being that honest and frank requires a lot of vulnerability and courage. And we don't role model. We don't role model that and we don't role model accountability well at all. Mm-hmm. We mask and we numb and we bypass. And it's it's killing us. It's having a detrimental impact on well-being, socioclimate. It's it's having a detrimental impact on our fundamental ability to to live and be in this world. And that's what's so outrageous, isn't it? When you hear sort of certain commentators, despite all of that overwhelming evidence, that then suggests that people of colour somehow have a victim mentality. And I think one of the points you really made eloquently in the book is the fact that it's not a victim mentality. It's actually incredible resilience, mm. given, you know, the context in which people are living. Yes. And but also, you know, if you if we if we unpack it more, particularly with a, with with anti-blackness, racism is sort of predicated on the fact that there is something inherently wrong with black people. Mm. So it's far easier to blame a community of people for their own suffering and victimization than it is to say, actually, there is something wrong with the fabric of the DNA of this country, which was founded on such violence and genocides and laws across the globe by the English that made it lawful to dehumanise Africans based on the colour of their skin. Mm. Now, um, we're going to get into that. How did we get this fucked? And I think we need to talk about the kind of the, the scientific racism and, and colonialism and all that kind of stuff. But I just want to, I think, pull us back to how fucked are we? And I think this is something that Ed and John and I, I think, found particularly upsetting um, and perhaps you could talk to us about the work of Kenneth and, and, and Mammy Clark and yeah. that because uh, I've got two kids who are five and two. Uh, Ed's daughter is, I think, four. And how old is Elsie, John? Five. Five. So we've yeah. all got kids that are of an age that are probably already inherently showing some kind of racial bias just by the fact that they've grown up in the UK. And I think for, mm. for parents, that's incredibly heartbreaking, but also I think goes to the heart of how fucked are we, that even at that young age, we've got these problems arising in the minds of, you know, the people that we assume to be the most innocent and giving in the world, which is our children. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Kenneth and Dr. Mammy Clark are both child psychologists. They're also a husband and wife duo. And they created something called the Clark Doll Project, also known as the Doll Test, where they started to get children, um, African-American children, and also children of other ethnicities, 
to respond to a test that had dolls, a, a white doll and a, a black doll and their various tests with other dolls with, with skin tones in between that. And the test asked the children and, you know, children doing the test are sort of three years old and up and asking them to point at which doll they think is the good doll and which doll is the pretty doll and which doll is the ugly doll. And over and over again, and this test was done beyond America as well. It's been done all over the world. The results were overwhelming. So many of the children were finding positive attributions to the dolls that were white with lighter skin tones than the dolls that were black and with darker skin tones. And that included children who were black and also having a negative association of the black dolls. And then suddenly that realisation of where they personally sit within that. And, you know, that that is the essence for me. Like, I don't play around. Like, we get into this ego debate about well, I'm not racist and this, that and the other, but children are showing you how it is learned so, so young. Um, Mm. And children are not born racist, but they learn it pretty damn quick. And so that doll test was monumental in proving the impact of the negative impact of segregation in America. And and it was monumental in, in, in ending segregation. But of course, you know, that behavior has been programmed for centuries and Mm. we're still experiencing the impact of that today well it's the water isn't it i mean you can nurture the fish but if the water is tainted then you're fighting an ongoing battle aren't you to try and help the fish see beyond the water yes yeah and i remember a colleague of mine um her daughter is eight years old now and i I think she was about six and uh she wanted a princess party and her mum had uh, she she's black and her mum had gone to great efforts to buy books that center black joy and have lots of different characters um of people who look like her daughter and by the time it came to this princess party her mum said well you know which princess do you want to be and she wanted to be cinderella and she said well why do you want to be cinderella and she said because princesses are white with blonde hair mm. so even with intentionally trying to provide representation that was like her daughter she still learned that programming because it's everywhere mm. and then you go on to talk a lot about how those things uh, we think of racism as far-right people committing yes. gross acts but actually it's this innate racism and how that manifests in what you might describe as smaller ways that is actually some of the most toxic and the most damaging for black people to hear Absolutely. It's the most corrosive. And there is so much research that shows just being exposed to the cumulative effects of racism in the everyday, the everyday microaggressions, the the kind of, I say the term loosely because it's not casual, but the everyday racism that's passed off as banter. Mm-hmm. There is so much research that shows that that can show up in the brain as trauma in black people in particular and cause more harm to mental health than overt acts. Mm. It's corrosive. That's the reality. And like, it's hard to hear. Um, and, it's, and it's even harder to live with. And, and like the fundamental, the core of why I do the work that I do is like, we have to look at this stuff. Like we're just going to keep reproducing racism mm. unless we look at the ugliness of this and take responsibility and accountability for our role in, in dismantling this. Mm. I mean, I was going to share a, a personal story, which was my, told to me by my late father, and he'd taken me to visit West Indian friends in London in the late 70s, when I was probably five or six. Uh, and I was playing with his friend's daughter of a similar age, you know, and 
I turned around and announced in, you know, awful childhood supposed innocence from my 1970s, pretty monocultural Norfolk upbringing, you know, to the abject horror of my father and probable weary unsurprised of his friends. I said, you know, you're a, you're an N-word, aren't you? I've never met an N-word before. You know, that's a horrific thing for me to confront from my own upbringing. Mm. And I think that... <sighs> Again, it's what's learned. Yeah. Like children in six or seven, they don't they don't understand. They don't have the emotional intelligence or the language, but it shows how quickly that that is learned. And 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 Ed, that's exactly the things that I ask people doing anti racism work to start confronting. Like, let's get up close and personal with your yeah. racism. And yeah. like, this isn't about shaming anyone. It's like we need to look at it and acknowledge that it's there or where it came from so that we can tackle it. Mm. One, of, one of the bits I found very interesting is, and I think this is specific to what's happening, driven by some of the conversations we have on social media, but you talk very directly about the difference between confronting white privilege and racism and the fact that white privilege has built into it a, a superiority. And oh, it's, yeah. it's easier for people to say, oh, I benefit from my white privilege than it is to say I benefit from racism. Yeah. It is. And, and it comes from that place of superiority as well. And, and not, not always conscious, but it has the same impact and outcome. Yeah, there's an element of, yeah, me and my white privilege. Like, let's say me and my racism. Like, like let's say that and see how differently that feels. And, and the latter always brings up shame. Um, so maybe this is a good time to sort of say, how did we get here? It's a very intertwined and difficult area but um you talk in the book i think probably at the beginning of the sort of the scientific racism so you know anybody who's a taxonomist will know the name carl linnaeus if i pronounce that right um you know basically the guy who invented how we name things and 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 nomenclature for uh, animals and plants and all that kind of stuff so you know and he wrote this very influential book called sistema naturae but as he was going around categorizing things he thought he'd have a go at categorizing human beings based on the color of their skin and over sort of the 12 revisions of his book he sort of came to a division of humans that reading it now you know is is it's horrible so he, he said there was a the, the, the europeans who he describes as gentle inventive mm. <laughs> um governed by law and then yeah. below that were the uh, sort of indigenous americans who he described as righteous and stubborn and zealous but unregulated by custom then he talked about asians where he said were severe and haughty and greedy, and they were ruled by their opinions. And right at the bottom were Africans, black Africans, uh, where he says things that they have females without shame, they're crafty, they're sly, they're lazy, they're cunning, they're lustful, they're careless, and they're governed by caprice. So, you know, and these are like, he's doing this as a science. This, I have taxonomized these people, and I am saying that these are the characteristics of black people in the same way I say the characteristics of a particular flower is it has this kind of, you know, stamen or whatever. And right there, you've got this, be, the very, I guess, the very beginnings of of the problem we're talking about. Exactly, and he he should have stayed with plants. <laughs> <laughs> he should have stayed with what he, he in his zone of genius and stuck with plants. It's um, hard not to read that and think he was probably shit at that as well. Well, there's, <laughs> you know, there's that as well. It makes me question standards of science, and and you know, it, it also feeds into why. So many black folk and, and other people of colour are really, really sceptical about science now wow. because we were the, the brunt of social experiments um, that were really based out of falsified tests and human bias and ignorance. Because often he would 
they would come to these understandings or beliefs about people, about Indigenous Americans, about Africans, without having never met them. Mm. So, um, but they stuck. We still see the impact today of people thinking that black people are lazy. Mm. Ed and I, when we're doing all our work in terms of systems, now you change systems as a sort of a mantra that we work by, which is the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided. And so mm. you're, what you're seeing there is kind of an intellectual, in inverted commas, justification for a heartfelt prejudice. Um, so yeah. you're trying to basically say, well, it's not me. I don't, it's not that I feel this way. Not that I just, it's just, it's just the facts. And that's, you know, I think you're seeing that obviously Carl had grown up with this kind of prejudice. Uh, or had acquired it and he found a way to intellectualize it so that it wasn't his problem it was just the, the facts as far as he was concerned yeah facts that weren't really facts and then of course yeah. you know that was that was then developed by a number of Europeans and I think the most well certainly what I have come across in in my work and, and my research and my work was sort of Johann Frederick Blumenbach who then really established a race hierarchy based on Linnaeus, Linnaeus's work and where he placed white at the top of this hierarchy. So white Europeans as the top, the most superior, and then Africans, black folk right at the bottom. And that really was a bedrock of what we're dealing with now in terms of anti-blackness. Yeah, it's amazing that none of these kind of supposed scientists, um, when they're devising these false hierarchies, ever put themselves anywhere but the top. Exactly. <laughs> It just so happens. I've done this research. It turns out I'm the best. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same when I watch the top 100 comedians every year on Channel 4. Yeah. You, know, you can't help but feel that the figures are wrong. Yes, that's true. Well, I mean, but actually, this, you know, we talk about systems change a lot on this podcast, and you see that in every self-justifying system. It's like, I remember, I think I've told this story before, I had a meeting with, with Nick Gibb, the schools minister, who you know, basically thought the existing school system was fine. Well, because why? Well, because he was schools minister, so it must have done all right, hasn't it? You know, because <laughs> you, know, you get this kind of like, I will, and I suppose this kind of goes to the heart of lots of prejudices is you to make yourself feel comfortable you put yourself at the top and that's what a certain sort of white european did and continue to do now mm. which is that i'm not racist i've got friends who are black and i like hip-hop what it doesn't mean anything like <laughs> it absolutely doesn't mean anything and there yeah there's a lot around identity and ego that mm. is not really being addressed and lack of honesty because I think if we're honest, most most of us know where our isms are. So let's get into that a bit more, because I also think what, we, what we're talking about here is kind of, as you say, the water. Like you can say, oh, I like hip hop or I've got friends or black, well, therefore I'm not a racist, which is kind of ignoring the, the kind of the inbuilt systemic inveigling in the kind of woodwork kind of racism that's there. I'm just, you know, there's obviously the scientific stuff we started at, but then, you know, one argument that I think holds some water is that maybe the root of racism or one of the big roots of racism is essentially all about power and money and that white Europeans basically went and pillaged the world. And in order to do that, they had to convince themselves that it was a right and noble thing to do. So in order to exploit and steal from all these other peoples, they somehow needed to demonize and delegitimize and dehumanize them. So, so yes. in that way, racism became embodied in the very fabric of the economic and governance systems that built the West. And that's yes. why it's so difficult to kind of root out. In a word, yes, absolutely. It became the bedrock of culture, governance. It was a, you know, it was an entire industry and lots of people, lots of money. Um, and you know, we see the consequences of that today with disproportionate wealth distribution mm. um, and those who are 
compounded socioeconomically, being disproportionately black. You know, we still see the impact of, of that today. And I'm like, how can we not have absorbed racist programming with, with that? Mm. It didn't, it wasn't just for one or two years, it was for centuries and centuries. And, you know, laws embedded by the English that said it's absolutely okay for you to do this to Africans because they're not human. Mm. Africans were the only people written in law, the only human community in history written in law as being subhuman. Mm. That has an impact. Yeah. Talking of like the centuries of embedded sort of racism, it, it came as a shock to some people that in 2015 we found out that the debt the government had borrowed, the UK government had borrowed. Yes. Slavery was apparently abolished in 1833. And in mm. order to abolish it, the British government went and borrowed £20 million in order to compensate 3,000 families that owned slaves for the loss of yes. their property. It didn't compensate the slaves. And we that, in today's money, works out at £308 billion we paid to slave yes. owners, um, which we took 182 years to pay off. So us as taxpayers have been paying that off. And yeah. that, I mean, that just sort of talks to the, the deeply embeddedness of it, that we, we compensated the evildoers. We did not compensate the people who've been oppressed. And, mm-hmm. and it took us 182 years to pay off that, that one debt. Yeah, because it was a debt so large. And we, the only reason we found that is because I think the, the Treasury were being performative and um, making out that it was something that we should all be proud of. And like, hold on a minute, who's been paying what? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there were a lot of people might not have known that had the Treasury not been performative and decided to share that on social media. I'm like, wow, yeah, that's an enormous debt. And a huge elongated period of social suffering that you and I as taxpayers were paying off until 2015. It's outrageous. Well, exactly. Especially if you're a black taxpayer, you're essentially paying off the yeah. compensation of your ancestors. It's outrageous. Yeah. Um, David, can I just uh, ask you to just clarify, when you say performative, because it's, some, it's, it's something you talk about in, in the Good Ally a lot, and some people listening might not kind of understand what, what you mean by sort of that performative aspect of talking about racism. Yeah, so I like to call it stage performance, <laughs> where it's more about being seen to be being anti-racist, being seen to be looking good, being seen to be saying the right things. And so it's more about managing perception um, and how you come across rather than actually tackling the issue at hand. Well, and sticking with our water metaphor, I mean, that's the surface, isn't it? You know, that's yeah. the surface without looking at the deep currents underneath or even acknowledging that those deep currents exist. Yeah, mm. exactly. It's a really powerful bit in the book and, and it's one of the sentences that had stayed with me because it's another way in which white people then actually put the onus back onto black people by seeming to say, look what I'm doing, but, you know, tagging yeah. you in on Twitter or saying I'm doing the course. The sentence you use in the book is, you need to notice that I am one of the good white people and make me feel better about it. Exactly. It's more about them and their ego and their perception and feeling good about all that's going wrong in the world rather than actually wanting to help. It comes from a very different place. One is self-serving and the other is about being of service. So when you're on the receiving end of that, of somebody who is uh, a black or you know another ethnic minority, you can tell the difference instinctively between somebody who is being of service and somebody who is self-serving. So is, is it like the difference, I suppose, between meeting you know, a person in real life and then watching a representation of them on the screen? One is the real thing and one is a representation of it that it, you know isn't the real thing. Yeah, I get it's performative. It's, it's like stage performance. You're playing a role rather than being authentic right. and honest in integrity. Mm. 
Well, exactly. And that's the intellectualization of it as well, isn't it? As I say, that performative piece is people don't feel it. You know, they'll say the intellectual thing, but they don't feel it in their heart. Yeah. Mm. I talk about that a lot about em- embodying. Like when yeah. I first started writing that, my editor said, no, I don't think people are going to understand what you mean by embodying. I said, they will by the end of the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's, I'm going to use that language because there is more to our senses. There is more to being human than just being able to use our cognitive ability to intellectualize something. There are so many other senses that we don't, you know, we feel stuff in our gut. Mm. Um, we overheat, we go cold. There's so much that our bodies are communicating with us about something that we we don't pay enough attention to. And so for me, it's about, okay, well, what's going on right now? What's going on in your body? Why is there a heat change? Why is your mouth suddenly dry? Like there's information there and paying attention to it because I think you see it and you experience it when people embody this work Mm. and they are being of service and when they're just intellectualizing it and remembering some stats and data and being performative Mm. you experience a very it's like night and day and equally the the feeling the other way and you talk about a a sort of company that invited you in to give what turned out to be a performative talk to, to make them feel better but the feelings, on the other hand, of people who aren't who aren't even doing that, who are confronting you and mm. confronting racism by saying, as you said earlier, I'm not or we're not or, you know, you talk about some people saying, well, are you telling me that a, a, a black experience of homelessness is different to a white experience of homelessness as a, mm. as a really defensive? And again, that, that I can feel that now. I saying it, I can feel the the tension in my shoulders yeah. of the person saying that because they feel threatened and frightened and they're not dealing with it. Mm. And it's it's one of the reasons now, like people will often ask me to consult with organisations or well-meaning colleagues or people who found me on the internet will put me forward to their companies and getting over in, getting over in. <laughs> and I I often say no a lot more than I say yes. I said you're not ready, mm. like you keep saying you want me to and I learned this the hard way from being in those environments with with people who want to tick boxes and I said do your senior managers really want to sit in a room with me and talk about their shame related to racism because that's that's the starting point with me Mm. I'm not doing this performative stuff anymore like I'm I'm getting old and I want to see like I'm more interested in transformation than defending egos and and being in a boxing room with people's egos and it, it requires humility and vulnerability mm. and most people in leadership roles aren't used to operating from that from that place yeah well because um, it, it, it can trigger a sort of personal identity crisis for people can't it and I think that's Absolutely. why what what you do is so powerful because you know people tend to focus on their own intent don't they go well you know we want to convince ourselves that we're good people but then if that leads to the this chronic failure to address the white shame well you know and you you mentioned shame because shame is so visceral isn't it yes. it makes us deny our wrongdoings and it's really it's a dangerous and powerful emotion to trigger so you have to do it carefully but you can't avoid it yes you know there's so much sort of social and emotional constructs we put up around ourselves to defend ourselves from feeling shamed and yes. yet actually that's where the real transformation as you say comes from it does. And also, shame is a human condition. If we go through our lives trying to avoid shame, like we're cutting off parts of our humanity. Like, shame is a human condition. I'm not saying we need to stay stuck in shame for, for <laughs> hours and months on end. Like, staying stuck there is not helpful or healthy either. But if we're trying to avoid it, we're mm. cutting off part of our humanity. And to me, 
racism has been built on so many lies and dehumanizing mm. people like we need to be leaning back into our humanity and that means getting up close and personal with our shame whether that's individual shame or collective shame that we almost inherit mm. based on who we cannot help but be and what I say is yeah we can be good people and we can do or say things that cause harm and we can do or say racist things Talking about not being sort of ready to address that kind of stuff and people being defensive, you know, and I, I want to go back to, I think, another sort of core of why, particularly in the UK, we're fucked, um, <laughs> which is that we th- that we don't talk about this collective kind of shame mm. and about what actually happens. So if you look, for instance, at the English history curriculum, so despite you know, the government's stated intent in that is it says that history is a subject that should be a high quality history education which will help pupils gain a coherent knowledge and understanding of britain's past and that of the wider world but slavery is just one of many optional extras under this sort of uh, heading of ideas and political power in the british empire 1745 to 1901 i mean it's like so you're saying you want us to have a full understanding of britain's role in the world and yet perhaps one of the most impactful and harmfully impactful things, but most important things from a historical perspective that we ever did is an optional extra. And I'm, I'm like, like for fuck's sake, you know, if you're not <laughs> going to put it in the actual curriculum, and it's it's in a marked contrast. You mentioned this is a book to to what has happened in Germany, which you know is not is not perfect as education curriculum, but you know, I know from my own German friends that you know, and, and if you look at the German curriculum, there's absolutely no way you cannot learn about the Holocaust and Nazism. It's compulsory that you have to learn about it. So they at least are kind of have addressed some of that shame and can talk about it whereas in the in the uk there are a whole bunch of people who have almost no idea about the horrific scale of the slave trade and surely that should be taught as kind of 101 growing up in britain absolutely and it's this sanitizing of history and and this and this is hiding it and you know if you poke around you'll see that this is this behavior is just ingrained there was something called Operation Legacy, where the, gov- the British government, the British state, ordered documents to be thrown away at sea or burned <laughs> and destroyed that implicated them um, and would make them look bad for the atrocities that they committed in other countries. So there's the literal burning of evidence of history that went on under this Operation Legacy. Mm. And then there's this sanitizing of who, you know, William Wilberforce abolished slavery and not really looking at, well, actually... Let's let's talk about let's talk about the Haitian Revolution and actually mm. what instigated the abolishment of slavery and the firm role that Africans played in that mm. and 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 not sanitizing it as been as white men suddenly getting moral and and feeling <laughs> feeling bad about things like it's just not true and so that's why I often talk about this is about being honest because there's just so much lies that has been embedded, um, which has led to so much ignorance today. Uh, that lack of honesty is also, it rolls out in terms of that mindless prejudice you get, doesn't it? I mean, I remember reading Satnam Sanghera's Empire Land, you know, of his sort of British Indian Sikh experience, you know, and he said, you know, when people say to him that idiotic phrase, you know, why don't you go back where you came from? And his response is always like, I am here because you were there. Exactly. You know, if you're that ignorant of history, you don't understand the relationship, troubled and turbulent though it may have been between our two countries, then you have no right to even be having a platform to address me in that way. So do you think, and over, I want to ask you this question because this is something that's happened quite recently, that this kind of collective kind of in the this willful blindness that's kind of institutionalized. Do you think that explains the 
Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities report that came out in April 2021, which is kind of, you know, done as this, I guess you would say, a kind of performative piece of research um, after George Floyd's murder, which, you know, the, the government said. And it basically came out and said that, you know, put simply, we no longer see a Britain where the system is deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. And in one way, that's kind of right, because you say, well, it's not overt, it's not deliberate, it's not, you know, but actually there is racism massively in there. And that whole report was almost like, oh, we don't want to talk about the actual stuff and it's not really there and blah, blah, blah. And then there was a kind of an incredible rebuttal of that report from from the UN, where they said it's stunning to read a report on race and ethnicity that repackages racist tropes and stereotypes into fact, twists data, misapplies statistics and studies into conclusionary findings that are ad hominem attacks on the people of African descent. The human rights experts in that report also said that it cited dubious evidence, made claims that rationalise white supremacy by using familiar arguments that have always justified racial hierarchy. So that, you know, that government report that we had almost came out and said, oh, we're not really racist. And it's a bit like, it's to me, that almost sounds like the institutional version of like, well, I like hip hop. I've got some black friends. So therefore, did you think that kind of explains that that moment? Oh my God, that moment was rage inducing for me, Um, especially because I'd just been dissecting a report that was commissioned by the House of Commons in November 2020. So a few months before this report came out that showed, I haven't got it in front of me, so you might need to fact check this, it showed around 70% of black people in Britain do not feel that their human rights will be considered in comparison to their white peers and that there is something seismic wrong and the equality and Human Rights Commission has failed um, um, across governments. So not just with the current Conservative, but across governments who've led this country consistently failed to address systemic racism, which suggests there's something wrong with the fabric of the DNA of this country. Mm. And then a few months later, hey, we're not racist. It's like, where's the credibility? So the first thing I do is like, well, who who is behind this report? And then you find that it's been cherry-picked with people who have pre-existing beliefs that institutionalised racism doesn't exist. So, of course, there's going to be no credibility. And it's very easy to cherry-pick data to make it uphold a certain agenda. Mm. Because, yeah, if you just dissect and look at data around who is achieving academically, yeah, if you do look at uh, people who are Asian and pitted as a model minority, they are doing better than working-class white boys. But then, well, well, let's look at what black caribbean boys are doing shall we and then start looking at the systemic issues that have have you know been the bedrock of society around civil rights in the uk when so many black caribbean children were shipped off in buses and not given a proper education and the impact that that still has today so mm-hmm. again it's like let me look at this who's who's put this report together where's the credibility and is the data being cherry picked or not and the mm-hmm. answer to that was there was no credibility and the data was being cherry-picked. Therefore, I do not need to give this any more of my time. Well, the brief for that report was basically to come to that conclusion, don't you think? Absolutely, because it, yeah. it conveniently aligned with the British monarchy being accused of racism yeah. after Harry and Meghan's explosive interview. Of course, it's been orchestrated yeah. to prove that that's not the case. And it's just, oh man, the gaslighting on that was outrageous. Yeah, but it can be worse than that, though, can't it? I mean, it can also be cultural as well. I mean, right in the process of researching for this episode, Mark and I were talking about the musical Avenue Q, you know, and there's that song in the musical, you know, set in New York where you know, everyone's a little bit racist, you know, which is it's a jolly tune. 
Um, and it has a few laughs in it. But on another level, it completely plays to the white privilege of equating all racism as equal. Yeah. And, and saying you know it's a level playing field and that we can all we can all should all just get over ourselves which completely ignores all of these historical prejudices and power dynamics yeah absolutely and it all it, you know I mean Avenue Q is <laughs> it's tongue-in-cheek yeah um but it, it, again it sanitizes it oh well we're all a little bit racist so let's just yeah. get on with it shall we mm-hmm. yeah. and I'm like you know unless you're unpacking and interrogating anti-blackness you are not being anti-racist because you do not fundamentally understand the birthplace of racism so um, uh, let's get on, I think, to sort of how we unfuck ourselves. I mean, one of the things just before we go on, I think that that it strikes me is if you look at any kind of system, it generally survives if it adapts. So if you look at ecosystems theory, organisms that are kind of successful, they continually adapt to the environment around them. And actually, the interpretation of, of Darwin's survival of the fittest is actually it's survival of the most adaptable. And what it strikes me listening to this conversation is that, is that racism evolves it changes as the culture changes or whatever and, and rather than just disappear it just morphs into a different form like that report saying oh it doesn't exist anymore so yes it does it's just you know slightly changed the way it operates and i think basically what we said is like racism is now in the water and it, and it underpins the modern history of the west so basically we don't want to admit it's there we don't educate ourselves about it and we don't want to feel in any way personally embroiled in it at all and that's the root of our of our fucking so if we take that as kind of where we've got to, that, you know, racism hasn't gone away, it's evolved into new and insidious forms. Um, how do we unfuck ourselves? I think, I mean, and, that, and I think this is the real power of the good ally and the work you do, Nova, is because of your kind of generosity and kindness. And as you say, calling people in rather than calling them out, you are able, I think, to kind of get to the the real unfucking we need to do, which is not about, you know, ridiculous reports from the from the commission of race and ethnic disparities which are kind of as we've just discussed kind of almost gaslighting they're whitewashing yeah <laughs> yeah indeed yeah yeah how do we get them fucking basically oh well honesty <laughs> <laughs> it's honesty and you know i i do say that i i, I used to work in mental health and and one of the first i remember one of the first lessons i had when i was um learning about psychotherapy and therapy of the mind was how harmful it can be to a person's mental health, particularly if they've got past trauma, to intentionally shame. So that's just stayed mm. in in how I show up in the world. And also, as somebody who's up close and personal with shame, I know you know I've been on the receiving end of being shamed, and and it's corrosive. Mm. Um, and so what I I think it's really important to highlight that that's not me not letting people off the hook and not holding people accountable, because we can hold people accountable for shitty and harmful behavior without shaming them like we do with children all the time Mm. um so it's about being honest and that's that's where it starts for me I I only work with people where we're at a place of acceptance like this is an issue I am complicit in some way and I want to do something about it I don't work with people who want to debate um because you, you you just go around in circles and we haven't got time so yeah. it's it's people who are ready to start from a place of acceptance and are willing and courageous enough to be honest. Well, that's the bystander effect, isn't it? I mean, that you obviously runs right through your book, you know, and is in the title. But, you know, the bystander effect that says, 
you know, if you fall over and hurt yourself in the street and there's only one person there to help you, they'll step in. If there's a whole crowd, everyone looks at each other and goes, oh, you know, he's fallen over in the street. I really hope someone else goes and helps him. And in many senses, a lot of these microaggressions you describe, it's the bystander effect writ large. And I was really struck also by the the story you share um, both in your book and and your TED talk about Daryl Davis, you know, American musician uh, who turned many members of the Ku Klux Klan you know, and and he used to say to him, didn't he? he Say, why do you hate me when you know nothing about me? And there's a brilliant moment where you know he, I think he's having a discussion with a, a Ku Klux Klan member who says, well, you know, black people have a, a crime gene or a violent crime gene, and his response is, well, white people have a serial killer gene. To which the guys, <laughs> the guys' response is, well, that's completely mad and outrageous. But he could sense in that disavowal that actually what he was saying was going in. Mm. And and David says, you know, the lesson learned is that ignorance breeds fear. And if you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will breed hatred. And if you don't keep hatred in check, it will breed destruction. Yeah, and we, yeah. you know, and James Baldwin, you know, argued that very, very passionately saying, you know, we, we cling to our own hate to avoid our own pain because we can't be honest with ourselves. Absolutely. And one of the reasons we're avoiding dealing with our own pain is because it brings up sh- like there's shame there. Like, yeah. Let's get let's address our shame because then we'll stop you know, blowing our our rage and pain and shame through other people. And, you know, the story of Daryl Davis is is an extraordinary one. And and it's not something I advocate that we all start doing (laughs) if we're black. My God, I mean, I don't know. That's an extraordinary amount of of courage and possibly madness from Daryl's part. But he was curious about the essence of it. He was curious about human behaviour. He couldn't understand. It wasn't about telling the members of the KKK that they were disgusting human beings or they were wrong. He was like, I need to understand where this behavior is. Like, how can you, like, how is this that you can have so much venom and hate for someone because of the color of their skin? Like it makes no sense. And his method of curiosity, you know, helped shine a spotlight on their bullshit. And, you know, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, he actually, Roger Kelly, the Ku Klux Klan imperial wizard that he sort of turned, you know, he actually became Kelly's daughter's godfather, didn't he? I mean, you know, Mm. they built, they built a strong friendship and that's just incredible. You know, I think the quote you use, he goes, we're living in the space age with stone age minds. Uh, And that's where the transcendence has to come from. And I, I wonder, is there something in there in that sort of, his approach, which is obviously transgressive, as you say, you wouldn't recommend it to people. But in a way, he's almost, it's almost bleakly funny what he tried to do, because it reveals the really awkward, uncomfortable and difficult truths that underpin these sort of false prejudices. Yeah, it exposes it. There's no substance to it. And it exposes that. I think the the method that Daryl uses that I dissect in my book is the power of curiosity and it can be really it can be really transformative especially if you're you know you're wanting to have difficult conversations if you're white and you're wanting to have conversations with people in your family who uphold racist views it, it can be really transformative in just exposing the bullshit and then they can't backtrack anymore because it just yeah. looks absolutely ridiculous and you can either carry on upholding ignorant and harmful and racist views or you can move forward um and so i think curiosity really exposes that but i think you also i mean what's important about your book is it's there is a point about obviously if we picture a racist we picture someone in the klu klux klan and you can target those people but what you're talking about is for all of us changing in a way what we see as racism and and one of your stories in the book is about 
going to your GP with what turned out to be just simply eczema and being unable to get a diagnosis because your GP had never seen a rash on black skin before. And that is, if you say picture a racist, you're not, that's not a GP who's going to rallies. That is a system that is set up to fail people. And we've talked a lot about the police because of recent history, whether it's changed anything is another debate, but we're talking about the police failing people. And I had never been forced to feel that sense of imagine not trusting your health service, the people you turn to when you are sick, because that system, again, is just not built properly to serve the people who need it. No, it's built to serve white folk. And it's the same in, um, you know, breast cancer adverts. You just see, oh, I say beige, but you just see pink boobs everywhere. What about brown breasts? And, you know, you just see advertising towards whiteness, Um, even covid there was all of this advice going around that if your lips turn blue, then that is a symptom. But as a black person, my lips don't turn blue. They're more likely to go a greyish colour. But, you know, if you ring A&E and say there was there was a, a, a couple that rung A&E and said, look, my partner's not doing well at all. And the question they asked was, are their lips turning blue? So, of course, the answer to that is no. Mm. But their their lips were turning greyish, but they weren't asking that. They weren't thinking about the fact that they're, you know, these things present differently on different skin tones and that can have a detrimental impact mm. on outcomes, including death. Yeah, I mean, you also talk about how, you know, there's still an embodied belief among many uh, people in the healthcare industry that uh, black people um, have thicker skin. And they yes. feel and they experience pain differently, as if they're again. It's almost that sort of scientific racism, sort of kind of. It's this descendant saying, "Oh well, these humans are different humans, and they, you know, their skin is different, and they feel pain differently." It's kind of an, an a sort of an evolution of that Linnaeus kind of hierarchy. Yeah, I, I mean, specifically for me, this is down to the work of somebody called um, James Marion Sims, specifically with black women being four to five times more likely to die in childbirth, and Marion Sims like to experiment on. African women without consent and he used to do that without anesthetic because he convinced himself that black people cannot experience pain and um, it wasn't like anesthetic wasn't available he just used anesthetic on white people and not black and as a result of that we still know have medical doctors who believe up until the most recent study I think it's 2016 that I've seen over 50% of white doctors believe that black people can withstand more pain and like that comes from the 1800s i mean that's the kind of the water writ large there isn't it yeah and uh, in your ted talk you kind of you know say you know we we think you know i think we'll retract this point several times you know you think of racists as you know Ku Klux Klan members or members of far right political groups, but actually, you know, really, it's doctors and grandparents and parents is all, you know, all of us because we're within this system. But then, you know, talking about the unfucking, I think this is a great thing you say in your TED talk where you say people who intentionally want to cause harm to another are in the minority. Yes. And well-intentioned, kind-hearted people are in the majority. And it's actually those people that you're wanting to work with to kind of go look at the system, look at your the way you've benefited from it and the way it influences the way you think. And then yes. because you are well-intentioned and kind-hearted we can actually do something pretty transformative about it exactly and and that's the bit that excites me and sometimes it excites me and also devastates me because like we're on the cusp of we're on the cusp of change whether we like it or not there's a huge shift happening and there are not enough people more people need to be brave more people need to be brave enough to to look and what excites me about it is that I, I do see the students, I do see the people that I work with who are embodying this work and are 
you know it becomes it, it becomes part of who they are and they have influential roles they are educational psychologists and they're they're calling other educational psychologists in who have who work with lots of teachers and then they're calling those teachers in and the reach of students is 170,000 so that's just one person mm. and there is a ripple effect and that can be very very transformative but it, it takes the courage of one and the honesty of one yeah I think I think that's again that's what something that stuck with me was like you know your approach which is not about blame and it's not even about being woke is it it's about actually widening human and humane understanding and there's a collective responsibility to deliver that communal healing you know and I think if if you're trying to break it down as you do at the end of of your TED talk you say you know it is about this education like learning that racism is beyond that overt hate it is about courage and to understand and challenge your own implicit biases and then when you do commit microaggressions you know and are challenged <laughs> you've got to be gracious in receipt of that feedback and apologize yes. and listen to others experience because well, I think we're so quick to jump to those conclusions and, and try and defend or deny aren't we yes and that's the thing like <laughs> people think that uh, again it's ego and identity again like <sighs> apologizing is it's just being accountable um it doesn't mean you're a bad person or it, it's just being honest and accountable my gosh you know I had no idea and I'm really sorry I hurt you. And clearly I need to f read up, find out more about this um, to better understand. But we don't, as a society, role model accountability enough. And that gets in the way of people apologising, like massively in friendships. It can sever relationships. Mm. You use this really great analogy about people bumping into your car. I think, could you do that for us? Because I think it kind of really yeah. sort of um, brings home that point you're making. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we get obsessed with focusing on our intention when it comes to racism. Oh, well, it wasn't my intent. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter whether it was your intent or not. The harm that is caused remains the same, whether it was intentional or not. And, you know, good people can have bumps in their cars all of the time. We can, you know, hit a car by accident or have a, you know, a bump in a supermarket car park. And it isn't our intention to drive around bashing into other people's cars, <laughs> but we still cause damage and we take responsibility for that. We exchange insurance details and we do what we need to make it right. And so for me, it's a bit of a metaphor in like, it's not about your intention. It's about that harm can be caused and we should be taking responsibility for the harm we cause. I'm aware of the toll of these conversations, so I think that's a very positive point to end on. I know it's hard for Ed because he has also admitted on this podcast he's a very bad driver. So I think he's, <laughs> I think he's dealing with yeah. a lot at the moment. Yeah, well, and, and also obviously a covert racist, so thanks for that, John. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I, I just want to, before we get uh, ending sort of on more sort of positive and, and notes, because, you know, the good ally is all about moving forward and what can we do. But, but I know if I just want to ask you, because um, we talk a lot about mental health on this podcast and how to look after yourself because you know we talk about all the grand systemic challenges we face in the world and how battling with that can all sometimes seem completely insurmountable and you feel like well you know what can I do and I'm just one person and also I just feel beaten up by all of this stuff I'd be really interested because you've been on perhaps for probably a more traumatic journey than many people sort of what your tips are for looking after yourself so that you can do the work that needs to be done yeah like I have regular rest days and recovery days. And so what that means is some days I'm not doing anything. I am not cooking. I am not tidying my house. I'm not reading. I'm literally doing nothing. And I'm just re-resourcing myself. I, I've learned to 
embody saying no without worrying about not being liked <laughs> because it's vital holding boundaries is vital for mental well-being so being able to practice boundaries and communicate them having support having sort of sisterhood people who get it that you could just offload to who will not invalidate your experience music is my go-to it's a healer for me particularly gospel energizes me soothes dancing martial arts wing chun cooking thinking about the food that i put in my body and how that resources me so paying taking care um about my body yeah prioritizing my well-being like saying no to things so that i can have days where i'm just focused on self-care and not feeling guilty about that i'm leaving a gap for mark to say something about prog rock but i don't think he's going to which <laughs> Is truly one of the most remarkable moments we've had on this podcast. So I think that speaks to how uh, interesting this has been. It's the first episode he's not mentioned it. Really? Yeah, it is probably. It must be the first episode we have had no prog rock reference. What does what does prog rock have to say about universal human experience? I left such a big gap there. Ed could almost have driven through it if he weren't such a bad driver. And yeah. Mark said nothing. I think, I mean, you know, if we're going to talk about racism, I think, I don't think you could get a whiter <laughs> music genre than prog rock. <laughs> I mean, it is, you know, it's basically, you know, old white guys who don't want to dance. It is so white. And uh, whilst, whilst I love it, I would never suggest that... Uh, Prog Rock has much of a place in, in an episode about uh, systemic racism. So that's, you know, I, I, it, it, it respectfully understands that it's probably not going to help. Can we do systemic racism every week then? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's much work to be done. As long as you stop writing poetry, Ed, I can, you can come to that deal, yeah. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> I can hear the, the cold in your voice now and I can hear the toll that having this conversation repeatedly about the book uh, is taken. So I, I think we should invite you now to take some rest. And, and thank you for your time and for the book, which we will make more of a deal of at the end, but is is a really important and fantastic piece of work. Oh, thank you. Um, I really enjoyed talking with you all. So, yeah, thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you, Nova. So there we go. Enormous gratitude to Nova for that chat. I hope you uh, enjoyed listening to it. It's, it's a chat that has stayed with me since we had it, I have to say. Uh, Mark and Ed, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things that sort of like resonate with me afterwards. You know, it's the fact that we don't role model the change enough. You know, we tend to deflect and numb and bypass. And, and I think you've got to get beyond that sort of stage performance thing that she describes, you know, being seen mm. to manage the perception, actually to feel the change in your heart. And it, we keep coming back to some sort of key themes across all of these really tough topics, which are around about, you know, being really brutally honest with ourselves, maintaining a, a spirit of curiosity, uh, having the empathy and compassion to engage in this stuff uh, and also sort of personal accountability. And, you know, actually at the end of Nova's book, she talks about the fact, you know, we're not at war here. Uh, you know, knowing more about this stuff doesn't make you inherently superior. This is about a humane transformation. So you have to sort of decenter yourself from the whole thing because it's not about you uh, and also overcome the fear of getting it wrong. You know, because this is about, mm. you know, an, an outreach of doing stuff together. And I, I still think the Gloria Steinem quote is really relevant. He's, you know, the truth will set you free, but first it will really piss you off. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I I say time and time again in, in my work and, and in both of the books that I've written, uh, as opposed <laughs> to the single book that Ed has written, um, is is actually where change comes from pretty much is what is often what I would call diverse bottom-up collaboration where you get a wide range of people collaborating together in the cause of, uh, you know, something new. And I think, you know, we we need to do, you know, that's exactly what we need to do. We all need to be in it to have any kind of change. Because as, as I think mm. the thing that really, you know, I mean, <clears throat> struck me, and I knew it already, but it's just, you know, it's just so depressing is that it's kind of in the water, it's kind of in the walls, and that's mm. how it's so difficult to, to, to get rid of. And, and just, you know, looking at my two kids, and thinking that already they're probably picking up some kind of racial stereotypes just because of the world they're growing up in, just makes you want to scream, really, quite frankly. And I, and I think, that, and if that's not enough to make all of us want to do more and be better at calling this stuff out, and as Nova says, being a good ally, then I don't know what what would get you to move. Yeah, the water is the thing, isn't it? On on all the topics we're discussing, I think what what struck me most is is even the manner of of making this episode of the podcast was slotting in conversations and scheduling when it's going to go out. And it's actually it has to be all encompassing, and and it has to be something that we all think about and engage with all the time. Similarly, you know there were a lot of conversations around these topics around the the black lives matter protests and now it's slipped off the news agenda and we talk about this a lot with climate as well that climate is on the news agenda and then it's not on the news agenda and equally women's rights have been there was a lot of conversation last year about making sure that we had representation making sure we have equal pay making sure we don't have discrimination and now we've slipped back to let's try and get men to not kill women and you're like fucking hell that's so that's so step one that actually, you know, I see now my Twitter feed, I follow a lot of comedy clubs. I see comedy bills that are once again, four white men on the comedy bill. And you think these things, they drip into the conversation for a little while. We don't change the the thoughts of decision makers. We don't have representation at the level of people who make decisions and it just drips back to normal. And that can happen for us because our lives go on and and we don't have to think about it every day, but it's not good enough. I've got to say, that's one of your least funny routines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? Uh, one of the things I got invited to do around COP26 was was be invited to to a panel talking about whether climate chat can be funny. And um, it's, it's, again, it's it feels such a regressive conversation. Well, it has to, whether it is or not, we've all got to be talking about it all the time mm. in a way that is progressive and interesting and not without hope. I know it's the point of this podcast, but it's the thing I can't stop thinking about on all these giant topics that mm. people are running away from them and people are not having the conversations because they're afraid that either it will depress them or they won't feel any hope or that there are no solutions. And the you know the relentlessness with which you have to drag people to these conversations and then try and keep them going afterwards not just say let's have a chat and then you go back to doing what you were doing but at least know you're doing the wrong thing mm. it, you know it is you know we we ended with nova talking about mental health and it is it is the strain on all people in these fields i think to have to keep going because mm. there is no alternative yeah I'm talking about whether climate is funny. Actually, at the TED conference, they uh, they asked a bunch of comedians if they could come up with a joke about climate change, and they all struggled. But the one I do remember, and I can't remember the comedian, um, he said, oh, "I went into uh, a DVD store and said, have you got an inconvenient truth?'" And they went, "Yeah, you're fat because you eat too much.'" <laughs> <laughs>
Um, unlike you, to not remember of the name of another comedian who's made you laugh more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> to much less loaded questions, to pointless questions. Um, Eric says, gentlemen, how many frozen chips are the perfect number to have on a plate with a piece of fish? He suggests 16. 47. 47, says Ed. That's a lot of chips. Um, I, I think you shouldn't be having frozen chips. I think you should make your own. I think frozen chips are, you know, just silly. Completely silly. Oh, mate. Come on. Don't come after frozen chips. I won't have it. Why, why not? They're nicer than homemade chips, frozen chips. Not if you do your chips right with a nice bit of olive oil and some 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 uh, some rosemary and a little bit of sea salt. Don't be no look. I know we've talked about swearing a lot. Don't be fucking telling me that you're putting <laughs> fresh rosemary on your bloody homemade chips of an evening. You've only got twenty minutes. Emmett's screaming. You whack some oven chips in. You put more in because you know you're going to eat some, right? Yeah. I do. Yes. I fill the bacon tray for Elsie every time. She's five. I put a trucker's portion of chips in the oven and I pretend, oh, the hand slipped. That's too many chips. And I know realistically she's going to eat it. I'm going to stand at the oven, hoovering them out of the baking tray. So I think the, an I think the answer to the question is how many is the perfect number? It is slightly more than you can possibly eat. Yeah, absolutely. 16 seems not enough. I, don't, yeah. I would rather put 30 in than put 16 in and wish I'd had 18. I was going to say, who counts their oven chips? That's a kind of level of psychosis. John, John <laughs> Richardson. John Richardson is the sort of man who counts. And it depends just... on the chip as well, doesn't it? If it's a French fry, 16 is yeah. not going to do the job. If it's a, if it's a McCain home fry. They're uh, also not of uniform length. So, you know, it depends. What, what, perhaps the, what is the total length of chip? So mm. people, people should actually line them up on the counter and say, I want 65 centimetres worth of chips. I think we should, we, I think we should you know, ask the listeners to come back with their preferred length. <coughs> of chip. <laughs> Let's not get back into that way of ending a series. <laughs> So somebody did say to me the other day they'd finally listened to the kind of uh, finale of series one uh, and said, hearing the Test Jacuzzi episode has changed my life. And it's like, <laughs> wow. I would say, well, I thought we went for epiphanies on this series, but, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting that one. Yeah, I don't think it's changed for the better, has it? <laughs> you know, we have had very nice emails from saying, you know, people saying, oh, I listened to that episode and it's changed this and that. Nobody's listening to the end of series one and making any good choices about their life, are they? <laughs> Thank you for listening to the end. Join us uh, next time for another uh, fascinating episode. Wonderful guests come in this series. Keep in touch via the usual channels. Gentlemen, have a wonderful week. Uh, thanks again to Nova and we'll see you next time. Take care of yourselves and the bloody planet. Bye-bye.